0: Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 144 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. It's been a week of hefting and high winds, checking colonies for food and making sure their roofs are still in place. Also, coming up, I'm starting to test my colonies for Nosema. SEMA. <laughs> Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. And to kick off today, I wanted to start by thanking Marcus and his fellow beekeepers at the South Gloucestershire Beekeeping Association here in the UK for being so welcoming this week. I was invited to speak at their monthly meeting, kind of last minute, a kind of super sub, I like to think super sub rather than the kid who turns out every week for training and the coach feels obliged to put him on the field of play just because he feels sorry for him. But I think they seem to enjoy it. Anyway, we chatted about my last couple of seasons and I showed lots of images of our beekeeping. And I think that's one of the great advantages of what I do. We've always got lots of pictures available to show. It was a really nice evening and hopefully everyone enjoyed the talk. We also had our local association AGM this week, that traditional meeting where normally the committee spend hours discussing how things are going and then half a dozen members turn out to complain that there weren't enough biscuits at the last meeting. Well, that's how it used to be. If there weren't enough biscuits this time round, it's their own fault. We're in lockdown, remember. It looks like I'm treasurer for another year be honest it's not too arduous a task really. A little paperwork and a lot of chasing around particularly at membership renewal time uh, around this time of the year actually. It just seems like beekeepers hate opening their wallets. Anyway onward to tales of this week's activities and what's happening here. The repairs to the track at the fishing lakes have allowed me to get over to the last two remaining apiaries and check them out. I say two apiaries, it's actually just one with a short gap between the two different sections. The smaller of the two sites only holds four or five colonies right now, but they still need attention to make sure all is well. One of the colonies last season was pretty much above average in all areas. Well, almost all areas. Temperament was not particularly great, but other than that, they refused to swarm were healthy throughout the season, produced an above average amount of honey, stored overwinter food supplies in their commercial brood box and settled into the winter really well. If it weren't for the slightly petulant temperament I might have used them for raising some queens this year but while I'm okay to put up with grumpy bees every now and again, if I had a full apiary of bees like these I think I'd probably get pretty grumpy myself fairly quickly, so I don't think I'll be breeding from this colony. Anyway, all seems fine in this twin apiary location. I added a little more fondant to several of the hives, mainly because they had worked through everything I'd already given them, and now's the time really to make sure that they're not left short of food. Around late January, my thoughts begin to turn towards pollen substitute, not actually feeding it to the bees as yet but just planning where I want it to go. You could make a case for giving it to all of the colonies. Strong hives are building gradually into late February and may need additional protein even though the early willow and hazel are beginning to appear. Yet weaker colonies may also benefit from a quick and easy source of protein at a time when They maybe can't get so many workers out of the hive to go foraging for that all-important supply of pollen to build up strong, healthy larvae. Maybe every colony deserves to get a boost, although some, as I've said before, don't seem to bother with it at all, regardless of the strength of the hive. There's nothing better than taking the roof off a hive in late February and seeing a pack of pollen substitute being demolished by the bees, knowing it's being put to good use in the brood nest. I'm continuing the hefting process at each apiary right now. I don't really feel the need to disturb the bees by looking into the brood boxes themselves, either by lifting the crown boards or splitting the brood box from the floor and looking from below. Again, another reason for enjoying the colonies that have the clear cover boards fitted. No need to mess the bees around and you can see clearly the seams of bees without difficulty. There were a couple of trees down at the fishing lakes. The high winds this week have no doubt caused issues around the country along with the torrential rain some parts have been having. We've been relatively lucky with no damage to any hives or apiaries but groundwater levels are very high and rivers full to bursting. One apiary in particular I've not been able to drive to because the field has been so wet, not to the point of getting stuck but I really don't want to do any damage to the meadow, so it's better to just park up and walk. I need the exercise anyway. I'm also on the lookout for any hives that have had their roofs lifted by the high winds. It's tough enough for the bees to keep control of the temperature inside the hive without having to contend with the roof being blown away. All of the poly hives have straps, so no worries there, but one or two of the wooden hives have Quite shallow roofs and are easily dislodged. So far, we're all good. While I've been travelling around checking apiaries, I've also had a chance to sneak a peek into the honeypore hives. These are mostly the colonies with our purchased queens from last year, and so far, I have to say they're looking pretty strong. All have solid clusters of bees, and hefting them certainly gives the impression that they're not short on food. The weather has been fairly mild. I say mild, it's been cold, but not freezing for long periods of time, and the bees have certainly been able to break cluster and move to the food. Initial feelings about these colonies is positive on the whole. They remain fairly frugal, as it seems they are currently. They won't really need any fondant, and I think simply adding some pollen substitute in late February is all I'm likely to do. The exciting part of their journey begins in March when the brood nests will hopefully begin expanding rapidly and we'll be heading to the oilseed rape with them to see how they perform. Moving on to today's main topic, now is a pretty good time to dust down your microscopes and check colonies for Nosema infections. Nocema is easily identified under a microscope and the process of sampling a colony is pretty straightforward and can be carried out with the minimum of equipment. You will need a high-powered microscope and most of these will have optics on them suitable for detecting Nocema. You'll need a times 400 magnification to get a really good look at it. You'll also need a small pestle and mortar, a pipette and some microscope slides and cover slips. But that's pretty much everything that you'll need. You don't have to use a stain but if you want to differentiate a little more you can use a stain called nigrosin. If you're going to find nocema sometime between now and spring is probably the best time to look. It tends to develop more quickly when the bees are confined through the colder months of winter. There are many types of nocema but only two affect the honeybee. Nosema apis and Nosema serranae. Both can be detected using the microscope, and although very similar in size and shape, with practice you can easily spot the two variants. In scientific terms, Nosema is a member of the fungi family, although when I was last looking at it in detail, there seemed to be some discussion as to exactly where it lay within the kingdom. I think currently it's still described as a microsporidia but that could have changed. The important thing is honeybees are affected by it, and in some instances it can spread quickly through a colony and cause a lot of disruption to both bees and beekeeper. The infection spreads through the midgut or ventriculus of the honeybee. Spores are ingested by honeybees that are found on combs and hive parts, having been spread there by previously infected honeybees. Now I know it's an infection of our poor honeybees and it makes them unwell and we should do all we can to get rid of it but well it's a really clever little thing that uses a very unique way to grow and spread. Once it gets itself into the gut of the bee it uses what's called a filamentous tubule which wound up like a spring suddenly uncoils out of the nocema casing and into the epithelial layer of cells lining the honeybee's gut. Once this tiny needle is inside an epithelial cell, it injects the host cell, thus infecting it. Once the spore has infected the cell, it multiplies using a process called morogony, or is it morogeny? I'm not really too sure. Anyway, it's a form of asexual reproduction, where the nucleus of the cell undergoes multiple divisions giving rise to what's known as uninucleate cells. These cells then go on to produce more spores using a process known as sporulation. More and more spores form and eventually pass through the bee and are passed out in faeces only to spread around the hive for more bees to become infected as they try to clean up. Nosema weakens the adult bees and can give them dysentery, which in turn means they're more likely to go to the loo inside the hive rather than to go out on cleansing flights. This is why sometimes you may see what we term as spotting on the outside of the hive, where bees have managed to drag themselves outside to go to the loo, but poop almost immediately, covering the hive with streaks of infected poo. Sorry if you're listening while having your breakfast today, but honestly, it is interesting. So at this point, it's obvious that if you want to sample your bees, you're going to need to take a sample of live bees in order to carry out the test. If you look online, you'll see sample numbers ranging from 30 to 60. The more you have, the better the certainty that you'll be getting an accurate picture. So I would head towards the 60 rather than 30 number of bees. The bees need to be taken from the entrance ideally. You don't want to be opening up the hive and grabbing a handful of bees, you want the older bees. The easiest way of doing this is picking a day when there's a little warmth in the air, wait for the bees to get out flying and then plug the entrance with a little foam. Returning bees will run around the entrance area where you can simply pick them up and put them into a container, such as a small plastic bag. If you have access to ethyl acetate, A piece of kitchen towel with a small amount soaked into it will kill the bees quickly and humanely. Petrol, on the other hand, is far more dangerous, but it will do the same thing. But I would maybe suggest your association buys a litre of ethyl acetate and you share it around perhaps. However you decide to do it, always put safety first and if in doubt seek out experienced help. Once you have your sample of bees pop them into the freezer to keep them in perfect condition until you're ready to test them. Once your microscope is set up and you're ready to get going, grab your sample of bees and sit at your desk or table to work methodically through the process. We start with the not so nice bit. Take out the bees from the packaging. If you've used any form of killing liquid, I would suggest taking them out and putting them on a paper towel in the garage or other well-ventilated area. What you need is the bee's abdomen. So you need to grab some tweezers. Did I mention you need tweezers? Anyway, pull the abdomen away from the rest of the bee and pop it into the pestle. Or is it the mortar? I can never quite remember. Anyway, put it into the bowl part and continue to do this until you have all of your samples in the bowl. Dispose of the other bee parts, unless you want to spend some time looking at them under the microscope too. Next, Add a few small drops of water to the pile of abdomen in the bowl and grind it into a pulp. Sorry if you're still eating your toast. After a minute or two, you'll be able to move the debris to one side. Tilt the bowl, called the mortar, I just checked on Google, and you'll see a greyish liquid trickle down. Take a couple of drops of this and put it on your microscope slide and gently lower the cover slip onto it. If you want to stain it, now's the time to put a drop of nigrosin stain on the mix prior to putting the cover slip in place. Pop it onto the microscope and voila, a grey out of focus blur showing absolutely nothing. Obviously, you'll have to focus it, and when you do, you'll see all manner of tiny objects fat bodies, bee parts, pollen grains. It's totally fascinating. Honestly, if you're unlucky, you'll also see tiny grains of rice looking objects about five to seven micrometers long, oval in shape with a dark edge to it. If you've used stain, it will be pretty obvious. This then is no Sema. Here in the UK, we don't have any approved treatments and the best way to clear it up is regular removal and replacement of brood frames and a spring clean of floor and brood box in really bad cases, you could carry out a shook swarm later in the spring when conditions are favourable. If you can't be bothered to go through all of that process, you could send your sample of bees to me and I'll do it for you. For a fee, of course. Well, that's it for this week. Check out the links in the podcast notes for more information about the topic today. But until next time, I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet.